in this moment, as you speak to us through the Holy Word, have your way in this time. In the name of Jesus, the risen Christ, we pray. Amen. It was nearly 20 years ago when I first started as the senior pastor of the Walnut Grove Missionary Baptist Church in Clarksville, Tennessee. And when I got there, I had an instant frame of reference in doing ministry. As a matter of fact, I came across as a genius because I had set up under a premier and proficient pastor in the person of Pastor Charles D. Twyman. I already knew exactly how to lead worship, how to prepare a sermon, how to conduct baptisms and do weddings and how to do funerals and so on and so on, how to conduct church business, how to build teams in ministry, how to grow various ministries, how to handle conflict. I learned some problem-solving skills and good techniques just through observational learning and direct mentoring as I set up under a great leader. So much to the point that when I got to Walnut Grove, I became guilty of trying to become Pastor Charles D. Twyman. And I became guilty of trying to transform Walnut Grove into Macedonia Baptist Church Clarksville campus. And I soon had to realize that I'm Carl Livingston. I'm in Clarksville, Tennessee. And while I always consulted my mentor, my pastor, while I always sought his advice and considered what he said as weighty, while I would always go to him for prayer and guidance, I soon had to realize that it was important that I lead ministry according to the dictates of the Holy Spirit and my conscience in my life. I had to find my own preacher's voice. I had to find my own pastor voice so that I could lead the people of God with conviction to the next level that God would have me to. So I shared that to say, Pastor Minor, that the mantle has been placed on you. And you've come from good stock. And don't feel ashamed if at first it seems like you're just mimicking your pastor. That's normal. He's our spiritual father. But at some point, you had to find your own voice. You had to find your own pastor voice. You have to find the path that God is leading you on. And then let me say to the church, as he's finding that path, you have to follow and support him. You voted for him. Now you must support him. And let me say this, because when I said you voted for him, some people rolled their eyes and said, no, I didn't. But by virtue of the fact you're still here, after the vote, you voted for him. 
But Pastor Minder, today I want to share with you a master key on how to begin ministry and to carry on ministry with great success. And here is the master key. We want to capture it in this way. Mind your own ministry. I didn't say mind your own business. I said mind your own ministry. We get this idea from the gospel as recorded by St. John chapter 21. We want to zoom in on verses 18 through 22. It's there you will find these words recorded. John's gospel chapter 21 verse 18. Verily, verily, I say unto thee. When thou was young, thou girdest thyself and walked where thou wouldest, but when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee, whether thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said unto him, Follow me. Then Peter, turning about, See if the disciple whom Jesus loved following, which also leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Jesus said unto him, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Mind your own ministry. The Lord had a blessing to the reading of his holy and inspired word. Let the church say amen. amen. John 21 is an epilogue of the gospel of John. It is the story after the story. For when we come to the end of John 20, it sounds like the book has already been concluded as he gives his purpose statement for which he has written a book when he said these things were written that you might believe that Jesus is the son of God and that believing you might have life through his name. And if John had said amen right there, it would have made perfectly good sense. But John picks up in chapter 21 and he gives us this epilogue, and we thank God for the epilogue because it is a story of restoration and grace. For if we did not have chapter 21, we would leave Peter being one who failed Jesus, and we don't know what happened afterwards. It will leave Thomas as the doubter, and we don't know what happened afterwards. But thank God for chapter 21 where he tells the story of restoration and in doing so he shows how God picks up Peter picks up Thomas and he restores them again we know that this is the case of his focus because when we look in verse 2 of chapter 21 we see that he names off seven disciples he names five of them by name two of them he doesn't name he just mentions there were two others it was a total of seven but he starts off the list by naming Peter and Thomas this was unusual because this was not the way when you look at how the names of the disciples are laid out all the other times you don't see this order of names but he puts Peter 
and he puts Thomas because this is the focus of what he's about to say in chapter 21. He's going to show how Jesus restored one who denied him and how Jesus restored one who doubted him and how he brings all the disciples back to a place of restoration. Anybody glad to know that Jesus, he restores. He picks us up. He gives us another chance. We see the whole picture of restoration that's all around fish because there's fish over here, fish over there, and no fish over here, and so on. And it is the point of restoration because it was the point where Jesus began with the disciples. You remember when they first met Jesus, they were out fishing. And while they were out fishing, Jesus comes up and he says, you no longer will be fishers of me or fishers of fish, but I will make you fishers of me. He gave them a new assignment. But even though he gave them a new assignment, after the resurrection, Jesus made three post-resurrection appearance by this time in chapter 21. And when he did so with Mary, he told Mary to tell my disciples and Peter. Now, you ever wonder why he said and Peter? The reason he said and Peter is because Peter felt like a failure. Peter didn't feel like a disciple anymore. He didn't feel worthy to be called a disciple anymore. He had lived in a dejected state of mind and so Jesus was already reaching back to him when he said tell my disciples and Peter he was saying I know that Peter feels like an outcast right now I know Peter feels downtrodden I know that Peter feels like I don't love him anymore but tell my disciples and Peter because he had a mission of coming to restore them it's in Matthew 28 where he gives a specific location about where he wants them to meet him. He says, meet me in Galilee. But when you meet me in Galilee, I want you to meet me on a specific mountain. And this is where John 21 starts off by showing us the disciples hanging out at the Sea of Tiberias, which is also the Sea of Galilee. And as they're hanging out there, it is there that they begin to drift off the assignment, drift off the path of God. And in doing so, Jesus shows up to begin this restoration process. So let me flash ahead real quick, and then we'll go back and pick it back up. Going back to the verse, right after Jesus has gone through this formal restoration process with Peter, Peter, do you love me? feed my sheep, and so on. He restores him. And then he predicts Peter's future. You're going to die. You're going to be crucified. You're going to suffer for my name. And then he tells him to follow me. But when Peter hears this, it disturbs him. And he looks around at John. And he says, hey, Jesus, what about John? And Jesus responds in so many words as to say, Peter, don't you worry about John. If I want John to live until I come back again, that's none of your business. 
you follow me. This is a great point of focus for ministry because, Pastor Minor, you'll see that in ministry it becomes easy to begin comparing yourself to other ministries and to other people when God has a path that he has charted for you. Don't worry about what God is doing in other churches and other ministries. You follow Jesus. Don't worry about the size of other churches. You follow Jesus. Don't worry about if you have a big crowd or if you have a small crowd. You follow Jesus. Don't worry about if others have massive building projects and they're busting the walls out week after week. Don't worry about it. You follow Jesus. Don't worry about the popularity of others. Don't worry about what others are driving or what others are getting paid. Don't worry about what others are prospering in when it feels like you might suffer for righteousness. Don't worry even about the voice of critics. Don't worry about mountains that seem so hard to climb. You follow Jesus. Jesus says, Peter, you follow me. So that being the case, there are three points of focus in this passage that will help to ensure that you stay on track in following Jesus as a pastor. Three points. Wake up and write these down. Number one, find the sheep. Number two, Feed the sheep. Number three, follow the Savior. These three things, find the sheep. Feed the sheep. Follow the Savior. So first of all, you must find the sheep. When you look in verses 1 through 14, the saying of the text opens with disciples who have veered off the path of God. They are acting in disobedience and they feel as if they can go about their happy lives and turn their back on Jesus. But you know the Bible says the ways of a transgressor are hard. You can't turn your back on God and then expect everything to be well with your life. And this is exactly what happened with Peter and the boys. Jesus told them, meet me in Galilee at a certain mountain. But they were there in the right place. But it appears they got tired of waiting on God. They were in the place and Peter stands up and he says, I'm going fishing. Because he was the leader, because he had influence, when he stood up to say, I'm going fishing, the other one saying, we're going with you. Now it's interesting that he names seven disciples here. He leaves two names out. He names five by name. There are two that he doesn't name. And that's a good place for you to insert you and me. We are a part of this story too. But here's what you must understand, brothers and sisters. When Peter said, I'm going fishing, he wasn't talking about taking an R&R excursion. But he was given his formal resignation. 
As a matter of fact, when you examine this phrase, when Peter says, I'm going fishing, it can literally be translated, I'm going to die. It was Peter's way of saying, I'm going fishing, and I'm going to die fishing. In other words, I'm done with Jesus. I'm done with the ministry. I'm done being a disciple. I'm going fishing because that's what I know. I'm going back to my old way. I'm going back to my old life. Forget you, Jesus. Forget this ministry stuff. I'm done. I'm done. I resign. And the other disciples didn't try to talk him out of it. They said, hey, we're going with you, Peter. He gave his resignation. And part of the reason he gave his resignation is because he became discouraged in ministry. He felt like a failure. He let Jesus down. He denied Jesus in front of a little girl. He got punked in front of a little girl. And now that Jesus was taking too long to come back, it allowed the self-condemnation to set in. And when the self-condemnation set in, it was at that moment that he said, I'm done with Jesus. I'm done with the ministry. I'm going fishing. But he was going fishing, but it was unauthorized fishing. And whenever there is unauthorized fishing, there is some consequences. Verse 3 tells us the first consequence. They didn't catch nothing. And here's the thing. They were professional fishermen. They were experts when it came to fishing. They had state-of-the-art equipment because when you look at the boat they got in, in the Greek text, it uses a definite article. They got in the boat. They didn't get in a boat. It was to indicate that they got in the original boat that they started their fishing business in, that they were successful in. They were in a good boat. They were with experts. They had perfect timing because they went fishing at night where they would have the highest success rate, but they were doing unauthorized fishing, and so they caught nothing. How many people know there's no substitute for Jesus? And when you refuse to wait on the Lord, you won't catch anything. And Pastor Minor, as pastor of God's church, I want you to be encouraged. Don't try to get by on your charm. Don't try to get by on your wit, on your expertise, and, and on your wisdom of humanness to say that I'm tired of waiting on the Lord. I'm going to just do this my way. But when you do that, you ain't going to catch nothing. You won't catch nothing. They had all the right equipment. They, they had all the right equipment, all the right people, all the expertise, but they didn't catch nothing. You can't do it with charm, with wit, with education. You can't do it with anything else. You need the power of Jesus. Jesus is the bait that'll help you catch fish when it's time to catch fish. But don't let pride and impatience with God and disobedience lead you down to a world of nothing. But not only when you're operating in disobedience will you not catch anything, but you also will become blind to Jesus. Because here they were toiling all night trying to catch fish 12 hours trying to catch fish coming up with nothing. Every time they put a net up, nothing there. 
And then when the sun rises, here comes Jesus stepping into the sunset right on the shore. Saying, boys, did you catch anything? But they didn't know that this was Jesus. They thought it was just some regular stranger. But you know something? Jesus had actually been there all night. 100 yards away. And he walks them back into obedience. You see, they didn't catch anything until Jesus showed up. That's God's word for somebody today. When you think that you can get by with your wealth, with your good looks, with your charm, when you think you can get by on all of your human wisdom, I want you to know Jesus will show up and tell you I'm in charge of your success and your failure. He will show up to remind you without me, you can do nothing. Did you hear what I said? Without me, you can do nothing. Jesus proved that he had control over all the fish in the sea. He was trying to show them, I've got control over your success and your failure. You will catch nothing if that's what I command. And you'll catch everything if that's what I command. And Jesus proved he's in charge. He had given the fish a restraining order. He told the fish, don't you go near that boat over there where my disciples are. Jesus talked to the fish, you can go to the Mediterranean Sea. You can go to the Red Sea, to the Black Sea, to the Caspian Sea. You can even swim in the Atlantic Ocean, but don't you dare go near the Sea of Galilee. Jesus proved that he was in control of the fish. They were, he was a stranger to them at this time. And he told them, this sounds insulting. He says, switch your net from the left side of the boat over to the right side of the boat. Now this had to be insulting to these professional fishermen. For them to tell them, the, the boat from the left to the right, there was only seven and a half feet difference. It's the same Sea of Galilee, and it would have been understandable if they even caught an attitude and said, who is this man telling us professional fishermen about switching our net when we've been out here fishing all night long? And you telling me to move my net over seven and a half feet. But for some reason or another, maybe it was a kind of authority in this stranger's voice, they complied. They did what this stranger that they didn't know was Jesus. They did what he said to do. And then all of a sudden they went from nothing to more than they could handle. In two seconds, when they obeyed this stranger to change the net seven and a half feet from the left side to the right side, they caught 153, not just fish, but mega fish. As a matter of fact, the fish were so huge, when you look at the word mega, it is the same word that's even used sometimes to describe whales in the Bible. Now, I don't know that it was a whole net full of whales, but I do know that John was trying to tell us it was some big old fish. It was 153 of them in the net, 
And that's when everything changed. It was obedience that caused their eyes to come open. They were blind before when they were working in disobedience. But obedience made their eyes come open. Because when they caught the 153 fish that bent the net, but it didn't break the net, that was God's way of showing, when I give you abundance, I'll give you what you need to be able to handle the abundance that I give you. I won't let the net break. But it was that very miracle, the, the only post-resurrection miracle that Jesus performs, it was that miracle that opened up the eyes of the disciples. It started off with perceptive John. John starts sniffing. John started tasting. He said, I smell a miracle. John started thinking about, he said, wait a minute, this seems familiar. This is a way out of no way. I know somebody. This seems familiar. Uh, Who is it that has power over the raging sea? Who is it that has the command over everything in the world and with his voice can change the course of nature? Who is it that can be touched and healing virtue spills out of his body? Who is it that can call the fish by name and make them come? John realizes it is the Lord. And so he declares it is the Lord. And you know something, brothers and sisters, that was the bait they needed to catch something. (laughs) They needed Jesus to show up because, as I mentioned, he knows all the fish by name. You see, at first they were on a restraining order. But once they obeyed, Jesus took the fish off restraining order and he started calling them by name. (laughs) Just let me use my sanctified imagination. He said, Salmon, come on over here. Swordfish, y'all come on over here. Sardines, come on over here. Tuna, codfish, come on over here. Tilapia, trout, orange, roughy, flounder, rainbow trout, red snapper, come over here. Fill the net. Bass fish, swordfish, come over here. And when Jesus started calling them by name, the little fish, they, they got still for a minute and they said, Hush. Hush. Somebody's calling my name. Another fish started talking to the other fish, said, sounds like Jesus. Somebody's calling my name. And it was that moment when the fish came and filled up the net that John said, it is the Lord. And when Peter heard that it was the Lord, it made Peter, watch this, put on his clothes. You see, it was normal for them to swim naked. But he put on his clothes. Now, we don't know if he was fully naked or partially naked, but this is how they would fish to make sure they didn't have anything wearing them down. But usually when people get ready to jump in the water, they take off their clothes. But Peter puts on his clothes because he's about to run to the presence of Jesus. And this is a good word for us as we're passing through here, brothers and sisters. There's a way that we ought to come into the presence of Jesus. When you get ready to come up into the presence of Jesus, you need to make sure that you present yourself in a reverent way. And Peter recognized, I'm about to go into the presence of the Lord. So he gets dressed up to reverently go into the presence of the Lord. 
And you don't mind if I use my sanctified imagination one more time, do you? I can, I can imagine as Peter starts swimming towards Jesus, I can hear in the background the, the song by Marvy Gaye and by Tammy Terrell. You can hear, da, 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 da. ain't no mountain high. Peter swimming, ain't no river wide enough. Ain't no valley low enough to keep me from getting to Jesus. But wait a minute. Here's the point that I want you to hone in on, brothers and sisters. Pastor Minor, what I want you to see is these were straying sheep that, that Jesus went to find. And when they discovered it's Jesus, they're running to Jesus. But what I want you to understand is not only were they excited to see Jesus, Jesus came for them. For understand, at this point, Jesus had already done everything that he needed to do to complete salvation story. He had already been born in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes. He had already lived on earth doing miracles. He was showed himself as the blind eye seer, the lame man walker, the dumb man talker, the deaf ear unstopper. He showed how that he was God in the flesh. He had already died upon an old rugged cross. He was already buried in the grave. He had already risen from the grave. Everything that he needed to do to be able to ascend and sit on the right hand of the Father he had already done it all but Jesus did not go back that quick because Peter was over here trying to give a resignation and Peter was on program for Pentecost if Peter didn't get restored there's not going to be a day of Pentecost when Peter stand up after the spirit of God comes on the people and then they say ye men of Israel these men are not drunk as you suppose but this is that which the prophet Joel spoke of and he'll begin preaching and 3,000 souls are going to get saved. Jesus he held up his ascension to come and find Peter so he can get him restored because we still got to write 1 Peter and 2 Peter I'm not done with you yet what I like about this brothers and sisters is Peter had given up on God but God didn't give up on him and this is God's word for somebody right here today. Maybe you feel like you failed so miserably and you are giving up on God because you don't feel that you are qualified to come into his presence anymore. You don't feel that you can be in the fellowship anymore. But in that very moment when you're turning your back saying I'm gone, I'm done with you Jesus, Jesus will come for you. He came and he found them. And when he found them, the first thing he did was fed them, which leads to my second point. Pastor Minor, mind your own ministry. Find the sheep. But when you find the sheep, feed the sheep. In verses 12 through 19, this is where we see right after Jesus comes on the scene and and Peter goes through all this. They, they're dragging this heavy net with 153 fish. They get to the other side. Jesus, he invites them to breakfast. For we see there in verse 12, Jesus said, come 
and dine. <laughs> Come and let's have breakfast. The first thing that Jesus did when he found the sheep was he fed the sheep. He didn't make them recite the Ten Commandments. He didn't make them do the Apostles' Creed. He didn't make them recite the 66 books of the Bible. He didn't take them through new members' orientation. He didn't say, you got to get baptized first in the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit. He didn't take them to, he didn't preach to them. He didn't rebuke them. He didn't even tell them about themselves, even though they deserved it because they had it coming. He took care of their natural need first. They were hungry. They had been fishing all night. They caught nothing. When Jesus shows up on the scene, we see this compassion. We see this grace. We see this concern for their welfare. He says, come and die. But isn't it funny, when they got to the other side of the shore, where Jesus had been, obviously, all night, the fish was still in the net, but did you notice Jesus had some fish cooking on coals of fire. There was already fish and bread. It was already there. They had breakfast. He already had breakfast prepared. Even though they were fishing all night, the fish was still in the net. And then he told them, okay, y'all can bring some of y'all fish and come and put it with my fish. But here's the thing that you had to take from this, brothers and sisters. Jesus was trying to show the disciples that when you try to get ahead by turning your back on me, when you get into your own way, trying to do your own thing, what you'll discover is that you'll come up with nothing. And the thing that you were going after, I had it all the time in my possession. But if you will put me first, instead of chasing after other things, then you'll discover that I already have everything that you need. So he fed the sheep. He commanded Peter to feed the sheep in verse 15. But here's the thing that I want to point out. Did you notice in verse 15, before he told Peter to feed my lamb and feed my sheep, notice that it says, when they had died. In other words, before he required Peter to go and feed, he already fed Peter. So shepherds that don't eat are in no shape to feed sheep. So Pastor Minor, make sure that you spend time regularly at the Lord's table. This invitation for the disciples to come and dine was an invitation for intimacy. And Jesus still extends this invitation to all of us every day. He says, come and dine. He desires to spend intimate time and fellowship with each of his children. And no shepherd is ready to feed sheep if the shepherd haven't eaten. It's wrong if you are a pastor or a preacher. And the only time you open your Bible is when you're going to get a sermon. It's wrong, brother pastor, brother pre preacher. The only time you open your Bible is when you're working on a Bible study. It's wrong if the only time you're opening the scripture is when you're going to get something for somebody else. But you need to spend time on your knees in the presence of the God getting fed for yourself. 
saying, Lord, I'm coming before you not because I'm looking for a sermon, not because I'm trying to put together a good Bible study, but because I need to be fed myself. Feed me with the bread of heaven. Pastors have to have a devotional life. Have to spend time in the presence of the Lord and regularly eat. Pastors need a pastor. An uncommon mentor that can feed you. You need to attend those preaching conferences that are designed to fill pastors up. You need to do that on a regular basis. And go into your private time of devotion every day. A call to preach is a call to study. A call to pastor is a call to God's presence and developing intimacy with the sheep. Because so goes the shepherd, so goes the church. Whatever direction the pastor goes in, the church goes in the same direction. This invitation to dinner was a sign of friendship and reconciliation. Let me ask you this question. When is the last time you invited somebody to dinner that denied you? When's the last time you invited somebody to dinner that betrayed you? Jesus shows us how that he has this spirit of grace and reconciliation. And in this position, he is so touched by God that he can call those who turn their back on him and failed him to a place of intimacy to restore you again. As we see Jesus giving a command to Peter to feed the sheep, there are two takeaways that we can't overlook. He gives us two other master keys to doing ministry successfully. Love God. Love his sheep. Love God. Love his sheep. And he confronts Peter with this trilogy because when the Lord comes to restore, he has to take you to the place where the fellowship was broken. And before he starts three times walking Peter through this confrontation in order to bring him to reconciliation because Peter denied him three times, he already had set the scene for reconciliation and it's pointed out in two different ways. First, when they showed up on the scene, there were coals of fire. You remember the only other place coals of fire were mentioned was in chapter 18, when Peter denied Jesus around codes of fire. But then, after Peter is challenged with these, do you love me? Do you agape me? Do you agape me? Do you filio me? Do you love me more than these? After he comes to the resolution, the place where he ends up is a place of grief. The word grieve that is used there, when it comes to the end, it says it grieved Peter, is the exact same word that was used in Matthew's gospel when it said after he denied and then Jesus looked at Peter in the eye. It grieved his soul. He wept bitterly. Jesus brought him back to the place of restoration so that he could build him up again. The command to feed the sheep is coupled with the command to tend to the sheep. Because he says, feed my lamb, 
Feed the young, the feeble, the vulnerable. Feed my sheep is different than when he said it the first time because when he talks about tending his sheep, it means you protect and discipline the sheep. Protect the sheep from wolves and false doctrine. Protect the sheep from fighting each other. Protect the sheep from straying. Pastors cannot be afraid of confrontation. They cannot be afraid of conflict, of making correction when necessary. As a pastor, you'll be required to have uncomfortable conversation. But that is part of tending the sheep of God. And finally, when you feed them, make sure you feed them the right stuff. When he said, feed my sheep, he wants you to feed them the word of God. You haven't been called to be a politician. You haven't been called to give a psycho so social analysis. You haven't been called to preach pop culture and to use gimmicks and to preach your, your opinion or to use the pulpit as a battering ram to, to give rants and tirades to scratch people's itching ears with fine enticing words of man's wisdoms. You haven't been called to be a prestidigitator, a mere entertainer, but you've been called to feed the sheep of God. And the only way you can feed the sheep of God is with the word of God. Preach the word. Preach the word in season, out of season. Preach the word. It's the only thing that will get us from earth to heaven. I'm reminded of a man who went into a bird shop. And he bought a parakeet. And the man told him this bird, he'll talk and he'll even quote Shakespeare. And the man took him home. The bird would never talk. So the man went back to the shop and he said to the man, he said, you told me this bird could talk and he can quote Shakespeare. I can't get him to say a word. He said, well, did you get him the little ladder? He run up the ladder first and then he'll talk. The man bought the ladder. He said, I got one of those for $25. He gave him the ladder. And then they went home and, and the bird still didn't talk. He went back and said, Hey, you sold me a ladder for $25. The bird ran up the ladder, but he still didn't talk. He said, well, did you get the little swing? And the man said, you didn't say anything about a swing. He said, I got one. I'll sell you for $50. He sold him a swing. He went home. He tried to get the bird to talk. The bird wouldn't talk after he ran up the ladder and was swinging on the swing. And then the man went back and he was angry. He said, you told me this bird, if he ran up the ladder and if he was swinging on the swing, you told me that he would talk and he'll quote Shakespeare. He said, well, did he ring the little bell after he got at the top of the, the ladder on the swing? He said, you ain't tell me nothing about a little bell. He said, I got one I'll sell you for $75. The man bought the bell. The bird ran up the ladder. The bird was swinging on the swing. He rang the bell and then he fell over and died. But just before the bird died, he finally talked and he said, did they have any bird seed? <laughs> the only thing that will get the people of God from earth to heaven is the word of God. When we have been called to feed the flock, we can't feed them with our opinion. We can't feed them with junk food, but we've got to open the book and declare what thus saith the Lord. 
Well, let me hurry to a close. Pastor Minor, mind your own ministry. Find the sheep. Feed the sheep. But finally, follow the Savior. This command to follow me, Jesus says it twice between verse 19 and 25. And they are structured in the same way. It is a present imperative second person singular. He is talking to every single person. Follow me. When he says to follow me, this means you've got to deny yourself. It means that you've got to totally come up under the control of Jesus Christ like a drunken man. When a person gets drunk, they lose control of their faculty. They stagger when they walk. It affects the way that they walk. They slur when they talk. It affects the way that they talk because they are under the influence. And Jesus, when he says to follow me, it's the same as when he says, let the word of God dwell richly in you. Let yourself be governed by the Holy Spirit, which is interchangeable. The more you fill yourself with the word, the more you fill yourself with the spirit and come up under the control of the Holy Spirit. That's how you follow Jesus. You yield yourself totally to him. And you say, I'm under your control. I move when you say move. I'll go when you say go. Jesus said, follow me. Now here's the main thing that's important about this part of the passage. When Jesus said, follow me, the first time he meant follow me around in the flesh. And that's what the disciples did. They followed him around in the flesh. They heard him preach audibly. They saw him do miracles with his own hand. They could feel his touch. But now when Jesus tells Peter to follow him, he's about to ascend to heaven and he won't be on the scene. You won't be able to see me anymore. But you follow me anyway. This is a transition of their faith. He's saying, you no longer will follow me by sight, but you're going to follow me by faith. Now, Jesus had already proven that he was worthy to be trusted in being followed by faith because three times in this passage, Jesus proved that I'm watching when you don't know I'm watching. I'm listening when you don't know I'm listening. And I'm there even when you think I'm not there. So when he's saying, follow me, you're going to be following me even though you're going to have to trust me even though you can't trace me. But you remember in John 20, in his first, in his second post-resurrection appearance, Thomas wasn't there for the first one. And when Thomas showed up and they were telling Thomas, they were saying, Thomas, Jesus was here. We saw him. We saw the resurrected Jesus. They were giving their testimony. And Thomas, he said, I don't believe y'all. I won't believe it unless I can see the nail print in his hands. Unless I can feel the wound in his side. I don't believe it. Jesus wasn't in the room when Thomas said that. But it was just a little while later, Jesus walked through the walls, appeared in the room, pulled out his hand and said, hey, Thomas, come and touch me. That was his way of saying, I can hear you talking when you don't know I'm listening. And then we see how that on the morning, when the morning came, the disciples were all night 
trying to find fish. They didn't have anything. But in the morning, Jesus shows up and says, hey, hey, fellas, did y'all catch anything? And Jesus showed up and gave them exactly what they need. Jesus was showing. I'm there when you think I'm not there. I'm watching when you think I'm not watching. You can depend on me. Follow me. Follow the footsteps of the Savior. Mind your own ministry. Find the sheep. Mind your own ministry. Feed the sheep. Mind your own ministry. Follow the Savior. And in the end, you can hear those words. Well done. Good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few I will make you ruler over many. Jesus promised never to leave you nor forsake you. He's a man of his word. He died on an old rugged cross. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. He was buried in the grave. But he rose early on the third day morning. He declared, I've got all power in heaven and earth in my hands. That's why you can follow me. Follow me all the way to the finish. Follow me through the storm and through the rain. Follow me through the easy time, but keep on following me through the hardships. Follow me when things are up, but keep on following me when they're down. And I will lead you to victory, follow the Savior. Pastor Minor, congratulations on your new appointment. Macedonia, congratulations on your new selection. May the Lord bring together this marriage and take you from faith to faith and glory to glory in his name. Mind your own ministry. Man, mind your own ministry. You know, when I was a little boy, my great.